You can go ahead and be seated. The band, praise team, and choir are going to make their way down. As they do, why don't you turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're in the New Testament. That's where we've been with this series that we started with the first of the year. Now, let me just give you a little background, a little explanation, uh, just in case maybe you um, have forgotten a little bit of what we're doing here. We tried to get the word out as best we could, but one of the things that we did right before Christmas was we talked about um, our need here at Newbridge to really kind of connect the generations. And uh, while we have always been a multi-generational church, while we have always been a church that has had ministry to the very youngest, to ministry to the very oldest, we haven't necessarily done a great job of connecting the generations. And that's one of the things that we're aiming to do with this worship format that we do on Sunday mornings now. Uh, starting at 1030, it gives us just a few extra minutes to where we can share and worship together. Our kids can be in here alongside their parents. And we'll have a time here in just a few minutes where our kids will go out along with uh, their parents, grandparents. And we encourage mom, dad, grandma, granddad, if you'd like to go with them. We've got a message that is geared for your child that is aimed at them. It's actually out of the book of Colossians where we are together in quote unquote, as the kids call it, big church. Uh, we're in that passage as well. Now, what we do with these passages is that on uh, early in the week, hopefully we'll get to the schedule where a week before we're preparing these passages, these messages and Pastor Stafford, Pastor J.D., and myself, we sit down together, go through the passage, come up with the sermon outline, we develop that together, preach the same message in here as what's back there with kids and their parents. It's just that the illustrations back there may be geared a little more at your kids' level so that parents, you can continue this discussion when you head home. So we're in this series out of the book of Colossians, and uh, one of the focal points of this series as we've started into it is that um, what we believe about Jesus Christ, it really does make a difference. What we believe about him, not just that we believe in him, but what we believe about him, that it matters. And we've been taking this book, Colossians, of which the focus truly is so much of this book on Jesus Christ himself. We've been going part by part. We've covered through the first chapter. Today, we're going to look in chapter 2. We're going to read down verses 1 through 10. And the focus here out of this book has been about what we believe about Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to draw into this discussion. Today, we're reading as we were reading and preparing here in chapter 2, as Stafford and J.D. and I were sitting and reading this passage, coming up with a sermon outline structure, breaking down this passage of Scripture, it became pretty obvious to us that this passage is talking about unity. It is talking about unity in the body of Christ. We feel that this passage is centered around that, seeking unity in the body of Christ. Uh, what should unify us? That's really the focus here in this passage. What should be our unifying factor here within the body of Christ and seeking unity within the body? Now, I pulled out a few definitions of what unity is because it's probably important for us to understand what we're talking about here. Now, if you were to look up the word unity in the dictionary, you could go to a couple of different sources. You could do like I did. I pulled it up on Google, went to dictionary.com, and there are a couple of different definitions there about unity. What does this word mean? What does it mean to be unified? Well, they had a couple of definitions. I didn't think they were all that great, but I'll read a couple of them to you. It said, the state of being, the state of being one or oneness. According to dictionary.com, unity is also the absence of diversity, the absence of diversity, unvaried 
or uniform character. I just want to say that when we're talking about unity within the church, we are not talking about the absence of diversity. That is not what we're talking about in the church. Unity is not uniformity. There is a huge difference. Uniformity means that we all fall into line all together. There is a sameness there about everything that we are and everything that we believe. The Bible doesn't talk about uniformity, but it does talk about unity. Now, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary actually has a couple of great definitions for the word unity. Here's what they say. The state or quality of not being multiple. (laughs) There's a oneness. Though there are multiple parts, we choose not to be multiple, but we choose to be connected as one. They also say it is a condition of harmony, accord. It's the quality or state of being made one. It's unification. Though we are different parts, though we have different places, though we have different experiences, though we have different personalities, though we have different backgrounds, we come together, we actually choose to bring what I am, who I am, the difference that I am, to be part of a greater whole because there is a greater good that we are aiming for together. That is the definition of biblical unity. When we talk about this topic, that is what we're talking about. We're not talking about uniformity. Everybody does not need to look the same. We are talking about unity. That is, you bring your difference, I bring my difference. I bring who I am, you bring who you are. You bring your gifts, I bring my gifts. We all bring them together and we make them, as we submit them to the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ, we make them function together. He draws these together and unifies them by his spirit and he makes the church one in its function. That's what we're talking about. Now, this passage of scripture deals with that and focuses on that passage, uh, on that thought. Let's read here in chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 1 and read down through verse 10. Then we're going to let our kids and their parents go. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ." As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now let's take a moment and pray together. Father, I ask that you would take this passage and you would use it to speak to our hearts today. Help us to understand about what it is you desire to do within your body, the body of Christ, not just this church, but certainly including this church, and how you desire to unify us by your power and your presence. 
In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to take this time and we're going to allow our children and parents, grandparents, if you'd like to come. Today, you actually have Pastor Stafford preaching to you. And so Pastor Stafford will be preaching to our kids and their parents and any of the grandparents who'd like to accompany them back to the back where they'll be covering the same passage of Scripture, the same topic today. Now, there's a question that lingers out here. We talked about what unity is. It's a oneness. It's, a, it's an accord that we come together. It's not, a, it's not a uniformity, but it is a unity. It is a unification where we come together. But the question is why? Why, why is unity necessary in the church? Why is unity a big part of what we do in the church? Well, over in Ephesians where Paul writes this in chapter 4, he says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because there's one body, one Spirit, you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father and all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Why? Why, why is it important to keep unity within the body of Christ? Why is this a goal that we're aiming for? Well, first of all, we're aiming for unity within the church because unity provides a theological foundation for who we are. Unity in the church is important because it lays all the biblical foundwork as we walk, foundation, groundwork as we walk together. Secondly, unity validates the church's witness. If we are unified together, if we are together and we say, this is our message, this is our goal, this is our aim, and if we are unified together, the world notices. Because if the church can't even agree as to what the message ought to be, if the church can't even agree as to what it is we're supposed to be proclaiming, how is it that people who don't know Christ are going to understand what we're saying? Why is unity important in the life of the church? What's theologically essential, it validates the church's witness, and we've got to remember there's a common enemy. The common enemy is not the Methodist down the road. It's not the Presbyterian down the road. It's not the Catholic church. It's not the Pentecostal church. Our common enemy is Satan who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And in the church, if we are able to stand together with a unified front, uh, knowing who our common enemy is, it makes all the difference in the battle that we are engaged in. So let's talk about this passage of Scripture, and we want to see what it is God desires to do within the body of Christ. What should unify us? Well, first of all, look down at verse 1. It says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now that word right there, what a great conflict, it actually means what great toil I have had, what, what, a, what a great struggle I have had. It's not that Paul has had a, 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 an argument, it's not that he's had a confrontation over this, it's that he is struggling inside his heart and in his soul to help the church be unified together, to be drawn together. And what he says, first of all, that unity in the church takes hard work. Unity in the church requires some effort. Unity doesn't just happen. Being aimed and being pointed to, coming together in one accord, unification happens when we work at unification. Um, any of you who may have read that great theologian, Calvin, that is Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes fame, the cartoon character, 
He's not in the newspapers anymore, but Calvin was a little boy who had his imaginary tiger, his stuffed tiger. When no other human being was around, his stuffed tiger came to life. But whenever he was in front of other people, it was a stuffed tiger. He'd drag around with him everywhere. But Calvin... The little boy was walking through his house one day. His father was sitting in his recliner. He had the newspaper open in front of him. Calvin came in with a loud voice and he announced, One day I'm going to be rich. And his father took the newspaper, folded it, and looked down at his son and said, Well, Calvin, it's great that you've got goals and plans in life. You know, you're going to have to work really hard if you want to be rich later in life. And his son announced and said, nah, I won't have to work really hard. You will, because I intend to inherit it all. (laughs) Hey, look, in the church, you don't inherit unity. It doesn't happen because of what people before you did. Now, we might be here in a building because there are people who walked before us and provided for this building. We belong to a church that has been in ministry, has been a functional church for well over a century, approaching two now. We didn't build this church. We didn't found this church. There were people who, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, founded this church. And they did much of the ministry in years before. But they cannot pass on to us unity. Unity is not something you inherit. Unity is something that we work for day in and day out. Unity is something that we have to strive for. It takes hard work to keep the church focused together in the direction that God desires the church to go and be. All we have to do is take a look around and see that there are plenty of ministries all across not just this nation and not just this state, but all across this city who may have some directionless, rudderless ministry. Unity takes some effort. And and let's be honest, there are times when we, as a church, become a little bit rudderless because we haven't been working as hard to keep the goal, biblical goal, what the biblical goal should be. Unity takes some hard work on the part of the church, all of us, as we strive together, because we don't inherit this. It's not given by the previous generation. It's a constant battle to maintain. And unity is a process. Verse 2 says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Unity is a process. You know, a chef, if they're going to make uh, a meal, they have a process that they go through. Now, they may not follow a recipe that is written down. They may know it in their head. But if they're fixing something, if they're fixing beef wellington or some some dish that uh, requires some technical expertise, they have a process that they go through or else the end result, the end product doesn't turn out the way that they want. You know, a a chef, a bakery chef, they have a process that they go through. They don't just dump everything into the bowl and dump it back out and there you go. 
There's a process that they go through. There's a mixing process, certain things that you put in at certain times. If you're going to have a meringue, you whip it in. You know, it's all that stuff. There's a process that goes on if you're going to make it right if you're a chef. A mechanic, if you take your car to the shop for a mechanic to check your car out, there's a process that they go through, process eliminating certain things, but there's also a process that they go to repair certain things. If your car needs something, they don't just go and take all the tires off if you've got a headlight problem on the front of your car. There's a process that they go through to determine where they're going to focus and where they're going to work. In the church, unity is a process too, but what's the process? Well, it says right here, here's where the process begins. Encouragement. Do you know that if we're going to attain unity in the church today, here's where we begin. Encouragement. That their hearts may be encouraged. It's awfully hard to be unified with somebody that we constantly criticize. It's a whole lot easier to be unified with somebody that we're constantly encouraging even if we see the flaw. It begins with encouragement, but it's not just encouragement, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, knit together in love. I love that imagery. I don't knit I really don't have an interest in knitting. Some of you do. You don't just pick up the knitting needles and take a ball of yarns and stick a needle in here and a stick a needle in there and then lay it out and say, I've made a wonderful creation. There's a process that you go through as you're knitting. I don't even know what it looks like, okay? So I'm just waving my hands up here pretending like there's some knitting that's going on and after you knit for a while, it's a process and it takes a long period of time, but then you could end up with something that is beautiful. But it says their hearts are knit together in love. It's a process. It means that I encourage you, that's where it begins. You encourage me, we encourage each other, but we take it a step further and we allow our hearts to be knit together in love. It isn't just, hey, seem like a nice guy. Hey, look good today. Hey, you're doing a great job. It is a genuine interest that says, I'm going to care about you. I'm going to love you, even though at times you may not be all that unlovable, that lovable. Even at times, I, even though at times I'm prickly, I'm temperamental. As a body, our hearts are being knit together in love as you love me even when I'm not very lovable. Love isn't about the feeling, by the way. Love is about the action that produces the feeling. And so I show the action even though I may not have the feeling. And the more that I show the action, the more that I act in love, the more the feeling begins to accompany that. And listen, that's why we're united together. That's why we come together. That's why we draw together in fellowship. That's part of the reason in the body why we do. And that's part of the reason why if you don't get connected in a small group here where you get to know some people, where they get to know you, and God allows your heart to be knit with them, we are likely to lose you somewhere along the way. But if your heart gets connected with somebody else, it's a little bit harder for you to slip out. 
If you make those friendships and connections, it's a little harder to slip away. I know that when the Lord brings that point in time where you may have to go somewhere else, he leads you to a new ministry, he leads you to a new location, it may be like a ripping inside your heart. It may hurt, but you know what, my friend? The reason it hurts is because you were doing it right. The reason it hurts when maybe you have to go to a different place, be in a different place, is because you got connected. And what that does for me as a pastor is it gives me this hope that if you got connected here, where you end up next, you're going to get connected there. If you don't get connected here, you're not likely to get connected there. Unity is a process where their hearts are knit together, and it begins with this encouragement with each other. It's a process, he says to your um, hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, that we attain all riches of the full under assurance of the understanding. We grow in God's word. We study God's word together. Through the knowledge of the mystery of God, we understand the sacrifice that Christ made for us, the mystery of God, both the Father and of Christ, the Son, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How does unity begin in a church? It begins with encouragement. It continues as our hearts are knit together in love. It continues as we gain an understanding of God's word. It continues as we begin to grow in our acknowledgement of what God desires to do in you and through you, both through the Father and the Son. We're going to seek unity within the body of Christ. We've got to recognize it takes hard work, and we've got to recognize it's a process. Third, we've got to be careful as to what unifies us. We have to be careful as to what unifies us. Verse 5, the Holy Spirit through Paul says, Though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let him be your unifying factor, rooted and built up in him in Christ and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. We've got to be careful as to what unifies us. The reality is this. There are plenty of voices calling for unity in our world today. There are plenty of voices out there there are plenty of voices that are calling for unity in our social order, what we do in the social gospel. There are plenty of voices calling for unity in politics. Just listen to one side or the other. They're calling for unity. I'm not going to get it right now, but they're calling for it. There are those who are calling for unity as to what we teach our, our children, our students, what the standards of learning are. There are all kinds of voices out there about unity that are speaking and shouting and calling for unity, but we've got to be careful as to what unifies us. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, back up to verse 4. In verse 4, it gives this indication. It says, there are some places, there are some people that are unified because of the force of the personality that leads them. Verse 4 says, don't let anybody lead you astray deceive you with persuasive words. Some unify through force of personality. They do. We've got to be careful 
as to what unifies us. Some unify through force of personality, but that's not what's supposed to unify us. Think for a moment in the secular world. There are certain personalities that can just, they just seem to be a unifying force. I know that most people don't like the New England Patriots right now. They, they're so glad they're not in the Super Bowl again. But you think of the, who the unifying forces are there. There's a coach who's been there for a lot of years, and a lot of people don't like him unless they play for him. And there's a quarterback there who a lot of people don't like unless he's throwing you the ball. There are personalities that unify that team. You can think with other sporting events, you can think of a guy like Red Auerbach who was the unifying force as the coach of the Boston Celtics for years and years. You can think of a guy like John Wooden who was the unifying force as the coach of the UCLA Bruins when they won championship after championship after championship. There are some people who just through the force of their personality draw people to them and spur them into motion, stir them to do something more. Even in the church, we see this. Even in the church, we see this. It's not just in the sports world. I mean, we see it in the business world. There's Warren Buffett. When Warren Buffett speaks, everybody listens. In the political world, there are forces there. There are personalities that draw them. But even in the church, there are people like Franklin Graham. Whenever Franklin speaks, there are people who listen to every single word that he says. Joel Osteen, when Joel Osteen speaks, whether you agree with him or not, like I, uh, like I don't, um, then... You understand, there are people who listen to every word that he says. But if this church becomes unified because Rob Edwards is the pastor, I have failed you. I have failed. Because this church shouldn't be unifying over the force of one personality or two or ten. This church should have a different unifying force. Some unify through force of personality. Some unify through tradition. Look down at verse 8. Be, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, according to the tradition of men. Some unify through force of personality, but some unify through tradition. Now, this isn't so much personality-based. It's not driven by a personality. It's not driven by one person, but it's driven by the tradition that's been there, specific actions or codes that people are expected to follow. It's driven by tradition. And I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but you know, in our, in our culture, in our secular world, there are, there are groups that are out there that their traditions steer them. Um, anybody who belongs to... The Masons know that their traditions steer much of what they do. There's a rite and a ritual that they're expected to follow. Maybe a better example for you ladies might be um, if anybody belongs to the Red Hat Society. Anybody in here, by the way, belong to the Red Hat Society? Do you know what this is? Maybe it's not as big anymore, but you know those ladies who get together with conventions, got the big red hats and got the purple feathers and whatever, and a few of you may, anyway, Red Hat Society was established so that ladies could have some fellowship together. Oh, but my goodness, don't you dare show up at a Red Hat gathering with a green hat. Oh, no. When you go, you better have a red hat, a red coat, a red skirt, a red shirt, 
You might have a purple sash or some other kind of purple highlight on you, but it is red and only red, and you better not wear any other color on your hat because it's the Red Hat Society. And they're unified through some of their traditions. Sounds silly? Well, aren't some of our traditions in church just as silly? There's some traditions that unite people even in the church, that are just traditions that are not necessarily based in Scripture. That the Bible is not the driving force, neither is Christ the driving force. We see that. We see that with Methodists who practice confirmation and infant baptism, Pentecostals who speak in tongues, Catholics with Mass and the ritual of their Mass. Often much of that's not based on Scripture. It's based on tradition. We've got to be careful what unifies us. Some unify through force of personality. Some unify through tradition. Some unify through logic and philosophy. The first part of verse 8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Again, it's not so much driven by personality. It's driven by an idea. It's idea-driven. The idea steers people and draws people together. Can you name who the head of PETA is? It's because there's no driving personality. It's the idea that steers PETA, people for the ethical treatment of animals. Maybe you can name who the head of the National Rifle Association is. Maybe you can't. But it's the idea that steers much of what they do together. In the church, the same thing happens. In the church, it may not be a person who steers this, but it's the idea. The whole seeker-sensitive movement, that is, that in the church, we should always be sensitive to everybody who's a seeker, never sharing things that might offend somebody who's trying to come to the Lord, never talk about the blood of Christ, never talk about the death of Christ, never talk about the sacrifice of Christ because we want to be seeker-sensitive. Well, there wasn't but maybe one or two people who were involved in that, but it wasn't driven by a personality. It was driven by an idea. The problem was the idea was flawed. The idea of the non-denominational movement that is springing up all across the United States. We don't want to be connected with the Baptists. We don't want to be connected with the Methodists. We don't want to be connected with those Lutherans or Episcopalians. We just want to be people in church. We want to be Christians. That's a great concept and thought. Except what is it that unifies Christians? It's got to be the scripture. It's got to be the word of God. That's got to be the unifying factor for the church. Those who say we can't sing hymns in church. Those on the flip side who say I get so sick and tired of singing choruses. Hey, you know, the unifying factor shouldn't be the type of music, but the message of the music. Some unify through logic and philosophy. Some unify through force of personality. Some unify through tradition. We've got to be careful what unifies us. The Holy Spirit through Paul says this. They unify through philosophy or tradition, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who's the head of all principality and power. 
Jesus is the focus. He has to be. Not only that, not only does Jesus have to be the focus, it has to be a true biblical understanding of who Jesus Christ is that is the focus. What we believe about Jesus Christ matters. What we believe about Jesus Christ makes a difference. I want you to imagine with me. Let's take just a moment and use your sanctified imagination. It is the last day. This is it. It is the last day. It is judgment day. And we are called to stand before the Father in heaven and his Son, Jesus Christ. And as we come before the throne and we walk before God Almighty, And he looks down and he says, Rob, why should I let you into my heaven? Imagine with me how it might sound for me to say, well, Father, you know, I always believed that Jesus was a good person. I always thought he was a good example, maybe a little flawed, maybe maybe a little sinful, but I always thought he was a good example. Or maybe for me to say, well, he was an ideal, and so I really tried to live my life the way that I thought that Jesus might live. He was an ideal, and I tried to live my life that way. What do you think God is going to say to me in that moment if that is my answer? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things, enter into your master's rest. I guarantee you it won't be those words. Because Jesus didn't come as just a good person. He is the fullness of God in the flesh. And he lived a perfect human life. And he went to the cross of Calvary and he died on the cross to wipe away my sin. And unless I confess him as my Savior, call on him as my Lord, acknowledge that I need a Savior to wipe away my sin and place my trust in him, I will not go in. The Bible is so very clear on Now, you may think, I'm not sure that I buy that. I'm not sure that I agree with that. I'm not sure I agree with that Bible stuff. There are a lot of people who don't. But my friend, what do you know about Jesus that you didn't learn from this book? What we believe about Jesus Christ matters. Unity for unity's sake is not what God wants. Unity will not be pleasing to God unless it is unified 
around Jesus Christ, our Savior.